James 3, 1 through 18. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers and sisters, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what they say, they are a perfect person, able also to bridle their whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire, and the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by humankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we will bless our Lord and Father, and with it we will curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My sisters and brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers and sisters, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Who is wise and understanding among you? By their good conduct, let them show their works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not, this is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vow practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. The word of the Lord. We are in a series on the book of James. Um, the book of James is all about how to do life as a follower of Jesus Christ. Uh, that makes it one of the most practical books in the Bible. Um, it asks the question, if you've had an encounter with the gospel, if, if your life has been transformed by an encounter with Jesus Christ, then what should your life actually look like as a result? The book of James shows us. And this week, um, this passage that we read, James gets into an area of our lives that's actually uh, one of the most challenging areas of our lives and also one of the most painful areas of our life. What is it? Words. Words. This is one of the most challenging areas of our life. For instance, um, did any of you here this morning say something this week that you wish you hadn't said? For some of you, you may not even have to go back, you know, all the way back into the week. It was just this morning. We all say things that we regret 
Um, and one of the really hard things about this, by the way, is that once those words are out, they can never be taken back. We can add more words to try to alleviate the damage that we've done, but we can never undo the damage that we've done. Once those words are said, they can never be unsaid because when it comes to words, words are never just words. This is one of the most challenging areas of our life, but it's also one of the most painful areas of our life because it's not just, you know, the words that we speak that do damage to others. It's, it's also the words that others have spoken that have done damage to us. So there are things that have been said to you, and it doesn't matter how many years ago it was, it could have even been decades ago, but those words are still lodged in there. The pain, the memory is still just as vivid as it was the day those words were spoken. Uh, This is one of the most painful areas of our life. Words, our tongue, is one of the most challenging areas. It's one of the most painful areas, which means that our words, this area of our life, is one of the areas of our life that needs the greatest healing. And that's where this passage actually helps us. It it shows us where we can find healing for our tongue. And when I say our tongue or our words, we realize that, you know, there are more ways than just the physical words coming out of our mouth that words can be damaging and harmful in our lives, especially in our age of social media. There are lots of ways that we can hurt and be hurt in and through our words. So let's look at it this morning by seeing three things about our tongue. Okay, James calls it the tongue. We're going to see the power of the tongue, the depths of the tongue, and lastly, healing for our tongue. All right? The power, the depths, and healing of our tongue. First, the power of our tongue. Uh, James starts right away in verse 1 by saying that... um, that not many people should become teachers because they will be judged with a greater strictness. Now, the basic point is pretty simple, um, saying that words matter. And that if your main occupation is going to be somebody who maybe speaks for a living, that you should be careful because God takes words very seriously. And James brings that out even more over the next few verses by giving us a series of three very short little illustrations. In the first one, he says that the tongue is like a bit that you put in the mouth of a horse. You know, a horse is one of the most powerful creatures in the world. But James is saying that all the power of that horse can be harnessed by the little bit that fits right in the mouth of that horse. Or the next illustration he gives us is a rudder on a ship. You know, a storm, um, the powerful winds on the sea, a storm is one of the most powerful forces in nature. And James says that the rudder on a ship can harness all the power of that storm in order to guide the ship safely to its destination. You see how this works. The last illustration is maybe the scariest of all because James says the tongue is like a little spark of fire. Just one little flicker. You know, a tiny little spark is enough to set a whole forest on fire. So you see how this works, right? This is the power of our words. One tiny little part, okay? Uh, A bit in the mouth of a horse, a rudder on a ship, uh, a little spark of flame. One tiny little part has incredible power. James is saying that's the kind of power that our words have. In fact, Jesus himself said the very same thing in Matthew chapter 12. In Matthew 12, Jesus said, that in the day of judgment, people will have to give an account for every careless word they spoke. Every careless word, we're going to have to give account. 
That's, that's what Jesus said. Now, James really brings out the same thing um, because if you go back to Genesis 1, when we think about the power of words, it actually makes sense because it's, it's the universe that we see. In Genesis 1, it says that God created everything that exists. How? By the word of his mouth. God spoke everything into existence. And James says, when you look at the universe, think about what human beings are. In, in verse 9, James refers back to Genesis 1, and he says that every human being is created in the image of God. And if God's words have power, enough power to create the world, and human beings are created in the image of God, that means that one of the ways we as human beings reflect God's image is in the power of our own words. Our words have power over every single area of our life. So let me give you some examples. First of all, words have incredible power over our identity and self-image. There's a, an old saying, um, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me. We have an updated version of that saying now in our contemporary Western culture. This is something that is so self-evident to us. It feels so obvious to us that we don't even think about it. But in our culture, we say, it doesn't matter what anyone else says about you. The only thing that matters is what you say about yourself. That's what we say in our culture, that it doesn't matter what anybody else says about you. The only word that matters is the word you say about yourself. But it's really not that simple. There's a big problem with that. And the problem is that we can't give ourselves the word that our hearts most deeply need. The word that our heart most deeply need always has to come from outside of ourselves. We can't give ourselves that word. So, for instance, Charles Taylor is one of the most influential philosophers in the world right now. He's widely recognized as one of the world's leading experts in identity formation. Charles Taylor says that um, he points out that our modern concept of identity formation thinks of identity formation as a monologue, okay? So, in other words, your identity is something that you create all by yourself in conversation with yourself. You have to look inside. You have to listen to what your heart is telling you. Identity formation is a monologue. Taylor says that's not the way identities are really formed, he says, your identity is never, ever formed just in monologue with yourself. He says, it's always a dialogue. So in a very famous essay he once wrote, uh, Charles Taylor says that one of the crucial features of human life is its fundamentally dialogical character. He says that we become full human agents capable of understanding ourselves and of defining our identity through our acquisition of rich human languages of expression. But, he says, people do not acquire the languages needed for self-definition on their own. Rather, we are introduced to them through interaction with others who matter to us, with people that he calls uh, significant others. In other words, he's saying that our identity, um, our whole concept of self-worth and dignity and value in this world is never something that we can create for ourselves. It's never created in monologue. It's always created in dialogue with other people. And the more those people matter to us, the more significant and influential those people and those voices and those words are in our life, the more those people and their words are going to have power to help shape our own identity. So for instance, um, if you think about those words that were said to you so very long ago, and the power that those words still hold over you. If you think about who said it to you, if it was some of your schoolmates um, at school who said something cruel to you, that hurts. 
But if it was your parents that said it to you, it hurts infinitely more. Those words have the power to go in deep like an arrow right to your heart. Words have incredible power to shape your identity and your concept of self-worth and self-image in this world. But let me give you another example. Words have tremendous power over society and community and the ability to damage our community. So there have been a lot of studies and polls over the last several years that um, have documented that institutional trust is at an all-time low in our culture. So if you think about um, all the institutions that fill our society, uh, politics, media, religion, business, because of all the lies, because of all the fake news, because of all the scandals and the corruptions, if you can't trust the words that the leaders of all these institutions are telling you, that erodes our society, that erodes our community. Words have the power to shape and even to damage our society and community. And boy, you really see that when you begin to think about the power that our words have to shape the way we see other people. I mean, when, when, when we use words about other people and towards other people, that shapes the way we actually see them. I mean, think about the words we use, as I mentioned, when we talk to each other on social media. It's kind of like road rage, except you're not sitting behind the wheel of a car, you're sitting behind a keyboard and just launching missiles out there. The words we use about other people, the words we use towards other people have tremendous power to shape the way we actually see those other people. Um, But if you look back at verse 9, James says that with our mouth we bless our Lord and Father, and with our mouth also we curse people who are made in the image of God. Now understand something. James knows that every human being is infected by sin. He knows that our world is filled with evil and injustice, and he knows that the source of all that evil and injustice in this world is from human beings that are infected by sin. He knows all of that. And yet he also says at the very same time that no matter how infected we are by sin, every single human being is still created in the image of God. And our words, the language that we use, is supposed to reflect that because it actually shapes the way we see other people. So for instance, you know what happens when you collapse another human being into one negative characteristic? They become something less than fully human. So, so if, if you collapse somebody into just one negative characteristic, instead of being a, a complex human being created in the image of God, they become, well, that person is just a liar, or that person is just a bigot, or they're just a sexist, whatever it might be. They become something less than fully human. Dear ones, you know that that is the reason that white southern plantation owners were able to justify enslaving millions of African Americans. And you know that that is the reason that Nazis were able to justify slaughtering millions of Jews. It's because they ignored the image of God in people. Now, I need to add, this does not mean that we um, ignore the claims and demands of justice in the world. This does not mean that, that we refuse to hold people accountable for the evil and injustice in their own lives and in this world. We have to stand up for those things, but we always have to do so in a way that that recognizes the image of God in other people. So let me give you an example. James Baldwin was one of the greatest writers of the 20th century. He was also um, one of the most powerful African-American voices for racial 
um, justice in our community, especially in the 1960s. Now, the thing about James Baldwin, you can watch him online. If you go to YouTube, you can see interviews and speeches that he gave. James Baldwin was not a tame lion. The man was fierce, and he stood up for racial justice and stood against white supremacy in a very fierce way. And yet, one of the things that's always struck me most about his writings is that he was always equally fierce in his insistence of refusing to dehumanize and demonize even his most bitter opponents. So in one of his books, he talks about how um, he was once invited to the home of Elijah Muhammad. If you don't know who that is, Elijah Muhammad was the leader of the nation of Islam for many years. Um, he was very famous for um, saying that all white people are devils, and he wanted to set up a separate society for African Americans, and he invited James Baldwin to his home that night because he wanted to get James Baldwin to join him in this movement. And in his book, James Baldwin said he just couldn't go there with Elijah Muhammad. He couldn't do it. He said, even though he looked at the world, he looked at our country and he saw all the evil and the injustice, even though he looked at this country and he saw all the, the oppression and the abuse that comes about as a result of white supremacy in our country, even though he's looking at all these people in the world who would look at him and deny his own humanity, he said he couldn't look at them and deny their humanity. He said, these people are not devils. They are my brothers and sisters, lost brothers and sisters to be sure. But, but still my brothers and sisters, and I cannot be free. My people cannot be free until they are free also. He said, we must stand together in the bond of our common human solidarity. That's one of the things he said. Friends, words have power in our lives and in our world. They have power over our identity and our self-image. They have power over community and society. They have power over our relationships with other people. And our words have power over the way we see other people. Words have incredible power. And that's the first thing we see. But secondly, we need to see um, the depths of our tongue. Because everything we've just seen is really important, but really all we've seen so far is just symptoms. And if we really want to find healing for our tongues and our words, then what we need is more than symptoms. We need to have a diagnosis, and that's what James gives us. And we see that especially in verses 11 through 12. James says, you need to look at the source of your words. Where are your words coming from? In verses 11 and 12, he gives us another series of very short little illustrations. He says, does a spring pour forth both fresh and salt water? Or can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. He's saying that whatever comes out of something is the result of what's inside of it. That's basically what he's saying. So for instance, if, you know, if you've got a freshwater pond, you're going to get fresh water out of it. Or if you've got a fig tree, you're going to get figs out of that tree. It's very simple. Whatever comes out of something is the result of what's inside of it. So here's the question. What's coming out of you? If, if the words coming out of your mouth are bitter or hurtful or damaging or angry or wounding, it's because deep inside of you there is bitterness or you're hurt or damaged or angry or wounded. And think about this. What do all of these little illustrations have in common? They all have to do with something that's hidden and something that's deep, right? So think about it. If you look at a spring of water, can you see the, the depths, the very bottom of a spring of water? 
that's hidden beneath the surface of the water? No, you can't see it. But when you um, look at the surface of the water, the surface of the water will show you what's hidden in those inner depths. Or if you look at a tree, can you see the roots that are buried deep beneath the surface of the earth? No, you can't. But when you look at the fruit on the tree, that shows you what's hidden beneath the surface of the earth in the hidden depths of the roots. And the concept is very simple. Friends, what is in the hidden depths of your heart? Your words reveal it. In fact, that's, James says so explicitly in verse 14. He says that if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, where? In your hearts. He says, do not boast and be false to the truth. The words of your mouth are going to reveal what's going on in the depths of your heart. Friends, that's exactly what Jesus himself said if we go back to Matthew chapter 12. In Matthew chapter 12, Jesus said, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. That's what Jesus said. Jesus is saying that that everything that comes out of your mouth ultimately is a reflection of what's going on inside of your heart. And the really fascinating thing about that is that that word he uses, abundance, is a word that literally means overflowing or excessiveness. Um, In other words, Jesus is saying that whatever's coming out of your mouth is not just a reflection of what's going on in your heart. It's a reflection of what's filling your heart. Do you know what's filling your heart? What does that mean? Every single person is living for something. Everybody in this room loves something more than they love anything else in the world. Something fills your heart. Do you know what it is? Whatever it is, it's going to shape the words that come out of your mouth. So if approval is what really fills your heart, that's going to shape the words that come out of your mouth. Maybe it means that you will um, refrain from speaking hard truths to people that need to hear them because you're afraid of rejection. Or it might mean that you might, um, the way you talk about yourself, um, you'll either kind of subtly insinuate little um, wonderful things about yourself, but subtly, we call it humble brag now, because we want people to know, but we don't want them to know that we want them to know. (laughs) Or you might kind of shade or downplay some of the less flattering things about yourself. You might even lie about yourself because you want to look good, because approval is filling your heart. Or that might even just mean that you just talk about yourself way too much because there's this deficit of approval in your heart and you're desperately trying to give yourself the word that your heart so desperately needs. Or what about, for instance, if it's uh, not approval, but power or control that's really filling your heart? If that's what's filling your heart, then you'll use your words to dominate people. You'll use your words to roll over people. Uh, Maybe you'll you'll use your words to manipulate people, and you can do that in very sophisticated and subtle ways sometimes, a lot of times without even really being aware of what it is we're really doing or how manipulative we're really being. But do you see how this works? The words we use are always going to be a reflection of what is ultimately filling our heart. So that if you want something desperately, but you're struggling to, to get it, or if you have something and you're just struggling to hold on to it, that's always going to come out in the words that you speak in the world around you. And in fact, James talks about this as well. If we go back to verse 14, James talks about having bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts. Think about that. What's jealousy and envy? 
That's basically when you feel like you're being deprived of something that you really want. Or, or selfishness, what's that? That's when, when you, you're clinging more and more to something that you really want. There's always a struggle that's going on in our heart either to get something we want or to hold on to something that we have. You know what really this all comes down to? It's, it's basically a pretty simple message. And the message is simply this. If you want to find healing for your words, you have to find healing for your heart. That's the message. If you want to find healing for your words, you have to find healing for your heart. But how does that happen? It's our last point. We've seen the power of the tongue. We've seen the depths of the tongue. But lastly, we need to see the healing of our tongue. If you want to find healing for your words, you have to find healing for your heart. But how does that happen? Let me offer you two ways. And the first is this. We need to do a little diagnosis, okay? We need to find out what's really filling your heart. How do you do that? There's a little exercise that was developed um, by a church many years ago in Philadelphia. They developed a, a course on Christian um, spiritual formation. It's called Sonship. Um, part of this course is a little exercise. It's called the tongue assignment. You know what the tongue assignment is? Uh, it's pretty simple. It's just this. For one week, okay, one week, you do these six things. You ready? Number one, do not complain or grumble. Number two, do not boast about anything at all. Number three, do not gossip or spread bad information about someone else. Number four, do not speak negatively about others or cut people down, even just a little bit. Number five, do not defend or excuse yourself no matter what. And number six, do always affirm other people. It's a pretty simple exercise, isn't it? I didn't say easy. <laughs> I said simple. <laughs> you know what that does for you? If you refrain from doing these six things, then um, it sets up a struggle in your heart because every time you want to grumble or, or complain, but you don't, or every time you want to gossip, but you don't, or every time you want to cut somebody down, but you don't, that sets up a struggle in your heart because what's happening is um, that by refraining from doing these things, it's actually giving you insight into what it is that's really filling your heart. It's kind of like setting up a gate on your mouth. You know, as long as there's no gate on your mouth, uh, you're not really paying attention to what's coming out, are you? It's just, whoosh, out come the words, and they just skedaddle all over the place. We're not really paying attention to them. But as soon as we set up that gate on our mouth, it forces us to start paying attention to the words, because as soon as there are words inside of you that you want to say but you can't, now all of a sudden you're starting to pay attention to what is going on inside of your heart that really wants to come out. So for one week, okay, Catherine's going to do this exercise. <laughs> for one week... No grumbling or complaining, no gossiping, no uh, boasting, no defending yourself, and no speaking negatively about others, okay, for one week. But here's the thing. Just doing that exercise all by itself is not enough. That's not really going to heal your heart. It will reveal your heart, but it won't heal your heart. And here's why. Because no human being really has the power to heal our heart. James says so in our passage. Um, if you look at verse 8, James says, No human being can tame the tongue. That is an amazing statement. Because right before that, James said, Look, human beings, we've tamed all the animals in the world. 
but no human being can tame the tongue. He's saying, look at human ingenuity. Look at human technology. We have incredible power to do all kinds of things in this world. I mean, nowadays, look at what we can do. And yet, James is saying that no human power, no human being has power to tame the tongue because no human being has power to change the heart. We can't do it. So, for instance, a technique is not going to do it. And I encourage you to do this tongue assignment. But, but that all by itself is not going to heal your heart. It's not going to change your heart. A technique can't do it. All that is is external behavior modification. External behavior modification. It's kind of like putting a tiger in a cage. You know, as long as that tiger is in the cage, it can't attack and harm anybody. But as soon as you open up the cage and it gets out... You know, it's all over. Putting a tiger in a cage can restrain the tiger, but it doesn't change the tiger. Same thing with our tongue. The same thing with our words. We can restrain ourselves. We can externally modify our behavior, but that doesn't all by itself change the heart. And you know, this is the difference between Christianity and every other religion in the world. Because every other religion in the world, except for Christianity, essentially is some form, some program of external behavior modification And basically, they all say, if you're a good person, then God will love you and accept you. If you obey the rules, if you practice these principles, if you apply these techniques to your lives, then you will achieve salvation or nirvana or divine consciousness or whatever version of salvation that particular religion offers to you. It's all up to you. It's all about you working hard, you exercising your own power, you applying the right techniques to your lives, and then you will achieve something in your life. You know, by the way, secularism essentially operates according to the same principle because if there is no God and this world is all there is, then your only shot at having a good or happy life essentially is all up to you. You're the one who has the power over it. It's all up to you. But friends, that is the difference between the gospel and every other approach to life. And by the way, if this is what we do, if this is all we do is this external behavior modification, not only does that not change our heart, it actually makes the stuff that's inside of our heart worse. It makes the selfishness and the bitterness and the envy and the jealousy and the pride and the ambition, it makes all of that stuff worse. Because if the only reason that you're being a good person or trying all these things is in order to get God to love you or to get a good life, then you're really not doing it for God or to, to be a good person. You're doing it because you're still after what it is, whatever it is that's really filling your heart. The, the difference between the gospel and every other religion in the world is simply this. The gospel is not a program of external behavior modification. It's internal heart transformation. How does that actually happen? If you want to find healing for your words, you have to find healing for your heart. So yes, do the tongue assignment. For one week, do those things. But all by itself, that's not enough. We need something else. And what we really need is this. Remember how just a bit ago we were talking about how we all really need a word from outside of ourselves. That the only word that's really going to that change our hearts is a word that always has to come from outside of ourselves. Where do we get that word from outside that's going to change our hearts. James talks about this, and we see it because one of the things we've seen is that James compares our hearts, um, I love this image, to a spring of water or a pool of water. If you look once again at verse 11, he said that a spring of water can't pour forth, notice how he says it, both fresh and salt water. Literally what he says, now our translations say fresh water and salt water, 
But literally what he says is a spring of water can't pour forth both sweet water and bitter water. He's saying that the water of our hearts is either going to be sweet or it's going to be bitter. And that's why James says in verse 8 that our words can be full of deadly poison. Our words can be full of poison because whatever's in our hearts, if there's poison and bitterness in our hearts, then the words that come out of our mouth are going to be full of poison and bitterness as well. And understand something. Poisonous words does not mean that you're always going to be like violently angry or overtly wrathful or hostile. Your your words can be poisonous. Your words can look, you know, at the end of the passage where he talks about in verse 17 that he wants us to be peaceable and gentle and open to reason and full of mercy and good fruits. Our words can sound like that and still be just as poisonous and just as bitter. If you've ever lived in the South, you know what that means. Just because you're not overtly angry does not mean that your heart is not bitter. What is going to heal the bitter waters of our heart? There's a story in Exodus chapter 15 about right uh, after the Israelites went through the Red Sea. Now, we're going to actually get into Exodus this fall. We're going to study that book. Um, But if you remember the story in Exodus 15, uh, the Israelites were being chased by the Egyptians and God opened the Red Sea. He opened the waters so the Israelites walked through the waters on dry ground. But when the Egyptians tried to follow them, they were swallowed by the waters and they perished. And, And the Israelites were saved. It was a miraculous salvation. It says right after that, the story right after that says that the the Israelites went into the desert wilderness and it says they got thirsty. And that for three days they were looking for water to drink until after those three days they finally came upon a pool of water. But when they tried to drink it, they couldn't because the water was bitter. You know what happened next? It says they grumbled. They complained. Their their hearts got bitter because they weren't getting what they wanted. Now understand something. They had just experienced the single most miraculous salvation in the history of the world up to that point. And yet right after that, as soon as they weren't getting what their hearts wanted, their hearts began to get bitter. And, And what happened is the words out of their mouth began to get bitter. Their hearts got poisoned. The words that were coming out of their mouth got poisoned. But what happened next is uh, Moses cried out to the Lord. And it says that God showed him a tree that had been cut down and Moses took the tree and he threw it into the water. And when he threw it into the bitter water, it turned the water sweet. And then the very next thing, it says that God spoke and God said, listen, my people, listen to me, listen to my voice, listen to my words. If you will listen to my voice and if you will listen to my words, then I will save you. I will heal you from all your diseases for I am the Lord, your healer. He says, listen to my words. I am your healer. Where are you going to get a word from outside of yourself that's going to heal the bitter waters of your heart? Dear ones, just as Moses cut down the tree and when he threw it into the bitter water, it turned the water sweet. Jesus Christ was hung on a cross, the ultimate tree. And Jesus Christ was cut down. Not just by the words of all the people standing around who were mocking him and jeering at him. Jesus Christ was cut down and thrown into the raging sea of God's judgment on all of our evil, all of our poison, all of our bitterness. 
Jesus was cut down and thrown into the bitter waters so that the waters of our heart could be made sweet. God says, listen to my words, I will be your healer. Do you see Jesus doing that for you? That's the word of the cross, and that's the word that your heart most deeply needs. That's the word from outside that will heal your heart. Because when you sink the word of the tree, the word of the cross deep into your heart, that turns the bitter waters into sweet waters. Because on the cross, all the poison and the bitterness fell into the heart of Jesus so that all the sweetness and the healing of God could fall into your hearts. Because all of his life, there was never a day in his life when Jesus didn't constantly have the words of the Father ringing in his ears. He was always hearing the Father saying, you are my beloved son, in you I am well pleased. What a word. And yet on the cross, Jesus got the silence that we deserve so that we could get the word that he deserves. Because all of the bitterness and all the poison, all of it went on to Jesus so that all the sweetness and the healing could come upon us. Friends, that is the ultimate word from outside that your heart most deeply needs. And when that word comes into your life, that's the healing that your heart needs. Do you know that word? Have you heard that word? Have you taken that word deep into your heart? Friends, that is the gospel. It's the ultimate word from outside that our hearts most deeply need. When you plunge the word of the cross into the bitterness of your heart, it turns the waters sweet. So for one week, okay, no gossiping, no complaining, no boasting, no defending, no cutting other people down. That will reveal your heart. But when you're doing that, when, when you feel those poisonous words beginning to well up inside of your heart, I want you to plunge the cross, plunge the word of the tree of the cross of Jesus Christ, plunge that into the bitterness of your heart and it will turn the waters sweet. It won't just reveal your heart, it will heal your heart and it will heal the words that come out of your mouth because it turns all the bitter waters sweet. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word and especially we thank you this morning for the word of the cross. And Father, we pray this morning that you would help us to uh, take this word, this tree, more deeply into our hearts, that it would heal the, all the stuff that's in our hearts. Father, whatever's going on inside of there, we want your healing word inside of our heart. We need your healing word inside of our heart. And so we pray, help us to embrace that word more and more, that as we take your word more deeply into our heart, that it would heal our heart and heal the words that come out of our mouth as well. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.